Tyler, for leading us in worship. It's good to be with you this morning, uh, both those of you who are here in the sanctuary, also for those who are listening live stream from wherever you are. It's an interesting time to be community and to be stretched in how we think about community, how we gather, how we disciple one another, but it's a privilege uh, to have the freedom to worship and uh, to gather and to disciple one another in the ways that we, that we can. Well, as uh, you know, we're in this uh, series called Four Stories, and we are talking about God's story, my story, your story, and our story. And it's a way for us to give context and to understand and have a conversation around the topic of racism, and also to do so in the context of the gospel and the church, which is so important for us to, to frame it in that way. Uh, racism is definitely a difficult topic to talk about at the best of times, uh, and yet it's one that is so important and it's relevant to all of us. Uh, it's a storm that seems to be rising up in different people's experiences and things that we see, we witness, and, and also experience in different ways right now. And uh, for some, uh, one of the ways I found it helpful to maybe think about was I've heard even in this COVID era, people talk about the fact that we're, we're all in the same storm, but we're not necessarily all in the same boat when it comes to COVID. It affects people differently in different ways. And I would say maybe the same could be true and could be said about racism, that even as we become more aware of things, see things, experience things, that maybe we're, we're part of the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And we come at it from very different vantage points. And so that's part of what this series is going to uh, help us to understand and unpack a little bit better. Um, for me, even in my ongoing preparation of this series, I have to confess that it's been very unsettling. As I read uh, different things that challenge me, as I hear different stories, as I interact with people in a variety of ways, uh, I could probably say that there has seldom been a time where I have felt more unprepared or unqualified to preach a sermon series than one like this. And yet, I also feel at the same time that it's really important to step into it. And, and even though as I feel unqualified in many ways as even a white majority person of a dominant culture, I am one that I feel like maybe it's even because of that that I need to speak to it as well, uh, as well as also giving opportunities for other voices, people who come from different perspectives, people of color and of various backgrounds, which we will give voice to throughout this series. Um, the series, I think, is unsettling for all of us. It should be. It will be in the weeks ahead. We're starting kind of easing into it, but we'll get into it more specifically. But as I've been kind of wrestling with things, it's helped me to see and understand some of my own lenses, some of my own biases, some of my own faulty lenses, and some of which are relatively innocent and some which are racist. And so for me, it's, it's kind of processing things and understanding things that have been part of my life and my history and my thinking over the course of, of many years. Because you see, there's, there's both the individual aspects of racism in terms of how we think about other people that are different than us in one way or another, but then there's also the corporate stories, the, the structural stories, the systemic stories, the stories that go through organizations over the course of many years. And those go back centuries and decades and a long time where we have to understand the biases that have been there, the racism that has have been there, where some people benefit and other people gain uh, disadvantage and are oppressed in a variety of ways. And so there are stories, many stories that we need to understand. 
And again, for those of us who are part of the more dominant white culture, we need to face these stories honestly, to see where we've benefited, to see where injustice has happened. And part of the problem is that it's, it's hard to actually face some of these things. It's hard for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's hard because it's hard to see our own blind spots. It's hard to see our own biases. That's the very nature of the term blind spots is that we don't actually see them. And then we want to defend and justify. And it's also hard because when we do see them and we do understand things in a new way, we're left with the question, so now we respond. What, what is a next step for us? But it's an important topic. And for those of us who are part of the more dominant white culture, we have to actually work harder. We actually have to listen deeper and longer. Withhold judgment for a longer period of time. Probe with more probing questions. Walk more humbly. And it can be a challenge. So why does this topic matter? Well, there are just so many reasons why this topic matters, but let me just mention a few. It matters because Jesus' love compels us. Jesus' love compels us to love our neighbor as ourselves, as it says in Scripture. And so we are to love other people extravagantly. We are to love our neighbors well. It's also an important topic because God created every human being in his image. Every human being is created with dignity and worth, and we are to see each other in that way. It also matters because our collective witness as a church requires us to respond to injustice discrimination, and evil by proclaiming and also living out a different kind of story of reconciliation. So there are many, many reasons why it matters. But here's the other thing that for me becomes important as I think about a topic like this is when we have a topic, any topic, but a topic like racism that that kind of swirls and is very uh, provocative in many ways and we have people with very differing views and we can get trigger points on different things and phrases to put our back up or whatever the case may be. When these things kind of swirl, what's really important is that we actually put these stories in the context of something bigger. And we put these stories in the context of God's bigger story to understand it more fully, more comprehensively, to remind it comprehensively, to remind ourselves over and over again about God's story for us and how it informs these ones that are so complex. So that's why in these first two weeks, we're, we're camping here in God's story to understand it again and again and again. Because you see, when it comes to uh, racism and topics like this, the why is really important. Why does this matter? The how, how do we respond? And we see those things answered in God's story. And so we need to dive in again and see that God has a plan, as we talked about last week. And that plan is founded on Jesus Christ. So let's look at how the story begins. And, and if you go all the way back to Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, we see a really unique passage that reminds us some of how God's story begins. And it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So right here at the beginning of God's story, as we have recorded in the book of Genesis, we see that humankind given God's identity and fingerprint and image and worth. And so there's something so powerful about that that we have to remind ourselves that all mankind is created in God's image. 
created to care for and steward and develop God's creation. And just a mere 10 or 11 chapters later in the book of Genesis, as you continue to read, you see that that this humanity is now spread out all over the earth with different languages, cultures, diversity, but all having the same worth and the same value. And then if you go to the last book that we have in Scripture that talks about God's story that we have in that way, it's in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 and 10. And and let me just read this beautiful picture of this worshiping community before the throne of God. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And here we have this incredible image of humanity worshiping the Lord together. This one worshiping body, many nations, tribes, people, and languages. This great picture of God's story of equal worth and beauty worshiping together. Bringing the riches of their cultures, bringing the riches of their uniqueness of who they were before the throne of God into a new family of God. So if you think about You know, in heaven, you're going to be listening to your style of music or what you're going to be surrounded by people who are just like you. I mean, think again. I mean, you might hear your preferred genre of music on occasion, but get ready to experience the wonder of cultures of the earth worshiping the King of Kings and God in all their splendor. And so here, even as we look at the beginning in Genesis and at the end in Revelation, we see this picture of a unique humanity created by God in the image of God with incredible worth and dignity. It's continually important to remind ourselves of that part of God's story. Well, we've been in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at this whole chapter here today, and I encourage you to turn to Ephesians 2. It is a powerful and concise story of God. And that's why I love, as you think about God's story, one of the greatest places to go look is the first three chapters of Ephesians. Just unpack it over and over again. And we looked at chapter 1 last week, and today we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. So last week we talked about the fact that God has a plan. And God's plan is centered on Jesus Christ. And this is a mysterious plan that he is revealing and making known. That God's plan is not random or by chance, but that he has a design and a purpose, and that God is in control. And so Jesus is at the center of this plan. We are called to be a unique community, a diverse community of faith in the middle of this plan. And our work together with God's work is a work of reconciliation. That we are called to this work of reconciling God to people and also people to people to each other. And so that's what we saw in Ephesians chapter 1. And now in Ephesians chapter 2, it continues. And we see that sin and rebellion got in the way following the passionate desires and sinful inclinations of our sinful desires, Paul says. Let me just read. The text I want you to look at is verse 4. Verse 4 is kind of the hinge point of this first section that we're going to look at. But I want to start at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 and reading through uh, to chapter 10. Just listen to these words of God's story. It says, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins... You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the heart to refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. 
scripture, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. And then this wonderful phrase, it says, but God. But God in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God, future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take any credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So part of God's story and our role in it is that there is this constant theme of sin and rebellion that just keeps coming forward. You go back to the Genesis account and you read through the rest of the Old Testament, that's what happened is the people of Israel were called out by God to bring the blessing of God to the nations of the earth and they forgot their identity and forgot their calling. And pretty soon it became this self-centeredness, this sinfulness that continues on to this very day even in our lives as well too. And that's what Paul is talking about here in the book of Ephesians that we just read about. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, Failing to trust and obey God. And that's the human condition where we so often put ourselves at the center. There's pride, there's arrogance, there's selfishness, and we turn against each other. And rather than using our power and our gifts and our advantages to serve and to bless other people, we begin to see others as less than, objects to be manipulated, taken advantage of. And the result is violence, oppression, and injustice in all kinds of forms. You know, even for me, just reading and rereading and rereading this text again this week, what was so encouraging is just the hope that is there in the gospel, where it says, in the midst of all this, but God, but God initiated because of his incredible love for us, and Jesus Christ took on this rebellion on himself and took it to the cross and reconciled people to each other. Into this mess, Jesus forgives us, restores us, redeems us, gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Into our sin-dead lives, he made us alive in Christ. So here's the thing that's so important for us to understand, is that God is the God who loves so extravagantly that he goes first, that he initiates, and he loves all kinds of people, and he calls us to do the same. He invites us to experience his kingdom more profoundly and call other people into this kingdom work more deeply. Well, let's keep reading in verse 11 to 18 as Paul continues. And remember, Paul is a Jew and he's speaking primarily to Gentiles in this new church in Ephesus. And he says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who are proud of their circumcision, circumcision affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. 
But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Jesus himself brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who are far away from him and peace to the Jews who are near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Wow. It's interesting. Paul identifies how there is oppression and name-calling and he even calls it out. He says, don't, don't forget you Gentiles, you were once called uncircumcised heathens. These are derogatory terms that often the Jews would use towards the Gentiles who were just simply non-Jews. And so there is this animosity between these two groups that Paul is calling out, and then he, he says, you know what, those, the Jews, they were so proud of their circumcision, but it only affected their bodies. It actually didn't affect their hearts, because God sees the heart. He sees what's going on inside of us. And these Jews thought they were in such good standing and so close to God because they did all the right things. And so Paul is calling them out and challenging them as well. It's interesting how our human nature is often to do to others what has been done to us, isn't it? You know, the Jews, they lived as oppressed people. They were oppressed and lived under occupation by the Roman government. And so they were oppressed people, and then they too begin to oppress people. Name-calling, creating division, Gentiles not allowed in the temple, all kinds of separation and distinctives that they kept reminding each other of. You don't have God. You don't have hope. You don't have this promise. You don't have the covenant. All the things that made them different. And Paul used this language about outsiders and insiders. And he says, you know, those who are near and those who are far. And, and whenever I read this passage in Ephesians, I, I so often think of, of Luke chapter 15. And the parables that Jesus tells. There's three stories in Luke 15 that Jesus tells about lostness. And he talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then he talks about a lost son. And if you've grown up in the church at all, even if you haven't grown up in the church, you've probably heard of the story of the prodigal son. It's a very common, well-known story that Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 15. And what's interesting about it, if you go to the beginning of Luke 15, you see that the people who he's teaching were actually, uh, he, he says, notorious sinners and tax collectors loved to listen to Jesus. Tax collectors had a category of sin all their own because they were despised. But also the Pharisees and the religious leaders loved to listen in too because they were intrigued. So Jesus is teaching them, and he teaches about lostness. And the story of the lost son is actually a story about two lost sons. Where the younger son, he wants his inheritance, and he goes off to a far land, and he squanders everything, and then eventually he comes home because he's so desperate. And there's this picture of his father standing at the roadway looking out for him and welcoming him back with open arms and a banquet and a robe and a ring and sandals and an embrace. And then the older son who's out in the field, he hears this music and this party going on. He says, what's going on? And he finds out it's his younger brother who's come home. 
And he is so angry and bitter because his heart has not been changed. And his father goes out to him too to invite him in and to be close. And what Jesus is teaching in this story is that lostness and being far or near, uh, like is talked about here in Ephesians, is sometimes deceptive to us. Sometimes we think we go through the right motions, we have the right credentials, we grew up in the right way, whatever, and so on. We think that we're close to God, but what is being challenged here is be careful where you think you stand, because God sees the heart. And so even in matters of, of racism, and as we think about where we stand on these topics, it's a good challenge to us to be careful where we think we stand. It's matters of the heart. And what is it that we actually do believe? And the biases that we do have. And so Luke 15 reminds us, just like in Ephesians that Paul is talking about here, that lostness or that those that are near and those that are far is sometimes deceptive. And we need to be careful how we judge. Because our human nature is to see ourselves very close to God and oftentimes other people who are very far. And then we have this picture at the end of chapter 2 that is an incredible picture of a new temple. And I don't think we understand how radical this picture is. But here you have the Jews and the Gentiles and this story of God that is reconciling these people groups that are so diverse, that are so distinct, that are so, uh, have animosity towards each other, have hatred towards each other. And now not only are they being reconciled together into a people of faith, but, but, but what is being said here is that they are the new temple. Now, if you were a Jew, the temple was everything. The temple was the center of the universe. And what Paul is saying here is so offensive. He's so offensive to the Pharisees and the religious leaders because he's saying, you are the new temple. Jews and Gentiles born together, coming together under Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God dwells and lives. And it is a radical picture of the church. And so Paul says, he says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. You know, God is not interested in temples that are made with human hands. The temple in Jerusalem was torn down, a pile of rubble. Jesus predicted that. Every stone would be cast down. God is interested in the temple that is the body of believers, of all nations, of all languages, of all people, worshiping together with a common spirit. Centered on Jesus Christ. Every nation, tribe, people, and language. God's story is a story where Jesus reconciles people who are so opposed to each other. Makes them one church. You know, the only way that we can move beyond name calling, the only way that we can move beyond just seeing others as far from God, the only way that we can move beyond oppressing one another, experiencing cultural genocide, seeing a, a white man press his knee into the neck of a black man until he stops breathing, is the peace that is found in Jesus Christ. Because you see, peace isn't the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of Jesus. 
And that's the story of God. You see, the hearts of man are dark. Our human condition is sin. But God, so rich in mercy, he initiated. He loved us all so much that he took it on himself. You see, Jesus wasn't, Jew, wasn't a white man. He was Jewish. Jesus was poor. He was not part of the wealthy elite. He was part of an oppressed minority in an occupied territory. Jesus entered the world in such insignificant ways. He was born in the manger amongst the animals. He was socially rejected and his worth was questioned. Can anything good come from Nazareth? We worship a savior who is despised, beaten, spit upon, hung on a tree, and died the most brutal death covered in his own blood. Jesus knew what it meant to be an unworthy outsider. And this is God himself. This is the God who identifies with outsiders and invites us to do the same, bringing God's peace and justice in Jesus' name. This is God's story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this incredible story of extravagant love. Now we confess that we too often just gloss over, and for those of us who've grown up in the church, it becomes simple, kind of bland, loses its meaning. God, would you help us to see it in new ways? Would you help us to experience it deeply? Would you help us to see the wonder and the hope and the promise of your gospel story? Would you help us to see you, Lord Jesus, for who you really are and the extravagant love that you have for us, dying on the cross for each one of us? And Lord, would you help us as a church to write a new story of reconciliation, of hope, of unity amidst diversity, of a profound love for one another. God, this is your story. I pray that you would help us to live into it and to do that well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.